You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Everybody, welcome to the exchange. I'm Kelly Evans on this Wednesday. Here's what's ahead. What banking crisis? One of the banks investors were most worried about posting deposit growth last quarter, even being added to the best idea list at one firm this morning. It's helped the regional banks go positive today. Morgan Stanley, meanwhile, has all but erased its losses. It and the broader markets trying to go positive. We've got all the details. Plus, Tesla cutting prices for the sixth time this year ahead of its report tonight. Our market guest owns the stock and is looking to add to her position. She's here to explain. And NVIDIA is the market darling this year, and analysts are scrambling to keep up. First, a double upgrade at HSBC yesterday. Today, a price target hike at B of A. We've got the analyst behind that note who says the stock could now be headed to 340, another 20% upside from here. And before all that, Dom Chu has the latest on these markets. It looks a lot like it did yesterday at this same time because we're seeing some losses, but they're not very dramatic, Kelly. And to that point, if you look at the Dow Industrials right now, we're down about 80 points, roughly one quarter of 1%, just about flat for the S&P 500. It's um, almost the exact same amount now, 4,152. So again, still holding above 4,100. Just to give you an idea of the narrow trading range that we've seen so far today, at the highs of the session, we were pretty much flat and then down 20 handles in the S&P at the lows. So again, tilting towards the higher end of that range right now. The NASDAQ composite outperforming, if you want to call it that, just very marginally positive. The composite index up three points, 12,157. One place we are seeing some more market declines and some notable levels being breached is in crude oil, specifically U.S. Benchmark West Texas Intermediate, which is now below the $80 mark again, $79.47, down about one and three quarters percent. It is now still, though, down about 35 percent from the highs that we saw back in June. But this level here was kind of important because you can kind of see I'm going to draw a line right here. This has been an area of kind of coalescing over the course of the last several months. We got a tick above here and are now drifting below that $81, $80 mark again. So watch those crude oil prices. And for that reason, energy stocks are seeing some price action to the downside today. And then Kelly talked about it right in the open. The regional bank that a lot of folks are focused on right now is one of the most embattled names out there in the wake of the Silicon Valley bank collapse. And that's Western Alliance which has been holding steady up about 20% on the day. I'm showing you the one-year chart just to give you some context. It's still way off where it was before the banking crisis happened, but still a 20% gain. The earnings report was mixed, but what they did tell us, and to Kelly's point, we knew that the deposit base shrunk by 11% from the end of last year to the end of the first quarter. What they then told us, Western Alliance, yesterday was in the first two weeks of the second quarter, this month that we're in, they saw $2 billion of deposit inflows. So could that mean the bottoming process is in effect for these deposit at regional banks, especially embattled ones? Kelly, that's a key point. Western Alliance, a big focus. I'll send things back over to you. 20% pop today, Dom Banks. Not only stabilizing, but growing those deposits, as you heard. For more, let's bring back Chris Marinak. He's director of research at Jenny Montgomery. Scott, Chris, we talked yesterday about how Bank of America's deposits were actually a little underwhelming. Now we have surprising growth at Western Alliance. What do you make of this? Well, it's good news, and we thought it was a better scene for deposits than the um, stocks were suggesting all throughout the month of March and here in early April. So it's uh, it's very good data to see from Western Alliance. I, I think there's more where that's coming from as we have other banks report uh, tonight, tomorrow, and all next week. I think banks of all shapes and sizes had better deposit flows than the stocks suggested the past several weeks. So it's just good news that finally happens. I think it's part of the healing process for the stocks, and you're starting to see some recovery and 
some of our main benchmarks for the bank sector, and obviously Western Alliance itself is having a good day so far. Why was Western Alliance one of the banks that we, I mean, you know, the share price kind of told you that's where one, the market was very concerned. Uh, there had been a lot of rumors flying around about it and equity raises and this and that. How, how do we get from there to here? So I think the big venture capital and private equity firms had an acute issue. Once the flea was on back on uh, March the 9th at uh, Silicon Valley, then everyone else was panicking about First Republic, about Western Alliance, PacWest, and Signature Bank. So we obviously had the outcomes on uh, Silicon Valley and Signature very quickly, but the other three have lived to tell the story about where they finished the month of March. And I think that's part of the therapy here is that Western Alliance goes first, First Republic's Monday, PacWest is next Thursday, and I think it's very healthy uh, to get this information out just to show kind of where the facts are, where not only deposits are, but where capital and earnings are. And the fact that this company is profitable, and I think many other banks are too, is very helpful to getting investors to refocus on the banks. Is this something of, uh, you know, maybe short covering a relief rally, a 20% pop? I know normally is more than that, but these shares are still down 35% this year and by more than 50% from their highs. What's it going to take to go from a sigh of relief to, I mean, for instance, where's the valuation here? So I think earnings are getting reset. Uh, we think the company, Western Alliance, is, is de-risking itself. And so that's going to make it for better uh, earnings going forward, particularly from a credit side. I think the credit risk of the company will get less as time passes. Um, investors have to also get comfortable with capital levels for the whole industry. I still think that there's capital that has to get raised for these companies over the next six to nine months, primarily just to show that they can. It's very analogous to what we have with the TARP repayments in 2009, where companies just raise capital to prove to the FDIC and to the Fed that they have access to funds. And those who don't have access ultimately will sell. Uh, I don't think there are many bank failures out there, but I do think there are companies that have to raise capital to kind of test the waters and show that they can Getting earnings out and getting the new deposit flows that come out with this information and all these SEC filings is very healthy, and it's part of the process that kind of begins to build investor confidence. And so I guess just a final question, you know, tangible book is seen to be something like $41 a share. It's below that level right now. But is that discount warranted because, uh, you know, the book uh, isn't what we thought? You know, even though this is a quarterly update, there's still some questions going forward about the ability of people to service existing loans and things like that. What kind of valuation do you think makes sense for a name like this and, and maybe across the space? Well, getting back to a premium to tangible book value is step one. So for Western Alliance and PacWest and even First Republic, getting back to book value is the first place to go. I think understanding where capital levels will be um, as they right-size and de-risk their balance sheet is important. I think Western Alliance is telling us that capital can be stable and then expand as the companies grow earnings. You know, most banks are retaining earnings at a pretty good clip this year. Even if consensus estimates come down, the retained earnings, what's left over after dividends and buybacks, is actually quite healthy. So that's the mystery that investors ignored in the month of March, but I think are now beginning to focus on as the new earnings come out for all of these companies. Yeah, and it's fascinating to watch. And maybe one of the most significant data points as well from the release, about 73% of deposits there are now insured. You know, perhaps right. they've worked with clients to kind of, you know, spread that across different accounts, maybe do some sweeps. I don't know exactly what that is, but that's up from less than half at the end of last year. And that's obviously uh, helping to quell concerns. Chris, thanks for rejoining us. It's good to see you again. Thank you very much. Chris Appreciate Marinak. It.
appreciate it. All right, so the early gains have given way to a little more tepid reaction to earnings, and my next guest is looking to trim some exposure here, even while adding to certain stocks like Salesforce and Tesla. Joining me now on set is Nancy Tangler. She's CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. Nancy, welcome. We're also joined by Barry Knapp, Managing Partner at Ironside's Macroeconomics, and he is taking no comfort from what the banks have reported so far. Welcome to both of you. Nancy, let me just start with you, kind of put this in context for us, earnings-wise. This is a tricky day as well, because this morning when Morgan Stanley was down 5%, it was an easier narrative than it is this afternoon as things are looking like they were stabilizing somewhat. Yeah, I think this market has been much stronger than it has a right to be. Um, and, and, but yet, earnings were not nearly as bad as many expected. I know you have Brian Reynolds on a lot. He's done the, the tax work, and so he expected, okay, not great. And that seems to be what we're getting. But I thought um, Sarah's interview with the CEO of PNC, don't call me a super regional or a regional right. bank, um, <laughs> was, was really instructive. And that, that company did diver, deliver better than expected. Um, across the board uh, metrics. And so that's one of the names we own. And we'll probably be adding to it in here. And we've stayed away from the banks. You know, so and it's far. funny because on Friday we had the big, you know, JP Morgan was way better than expected. Right. But then PNC, a little concern about that lower loan loss provision. They're lower, the regional bank stocks lower. And then today Western Alliance comes out. And it, I mean, this is a very different story. And I'm sure it makes, a, by extension, a name like PNC, which has seemed to be even better positioned, benefit right. from that. Uh, absolutely. And, and I think you're starting to see the management, like Goldman, do what the technology companies have done. You know, they're, they're focusing, they're, re, they're honing their business models and their uh, employment. That's good. Yeah. That's good for the stocks. Well said. Mm -hmm. Barry, let me just turn to you. I don't know if you've dug into Morgan Stanley. It'd be unfair to put that on you. But why is it that uh, up to this point, you are not so impressed by what we've seen in some of the bank results? Well, I think that the big banks were beneficiaries of um, some regulatory policy back in 21, in particular when the um, Fed ended the exemption for cash and treasuries from the supplementary leverage ratio. And that meant that the big banks couldn't take in deposits at a point when the Treasury and Fed were injecting better than $3 trillion of liquidity of bank reserves into the system. And so as a consequence, they didn't wind up with that problem of what do we do with the cash in 2021, didn't buy as many treasuries and mortgage-backed securities as some of these smaller banks where the money did flow. And so now that credit is tightening, the money's coming into them and they're dealing with it. But my, my issue still is with the banks. And the last interview you gave was, was indicative of that because he said, the analysts said that they're de-risking, right? So that means they're shrinking their balance sheet. This mm -hmm. is the knock-on effects of credit tightening that's, un, that's likely to permeate through small business generally and construction more specifically, right? Uh, your interview with my old colleague Steve Kim yesterday, I thought was instructive, where Steve said 70% of the home building market, resi market that is, is small mom and pop type operations. Right. They're not going to get any capital for spec building. So, you know, this is going to take three to six months really to manifest itself through the economy. But I think it'll show up in continuing of slower and softening labor income. And it will have a macroeconomic fallout. There is an obvious solution to it, which is the Fed ceases and desists yeah. on the rate hikes and may <laughs> need to back off. But, you know, they don't seem to be giving much inclination other than Austin Goolsbee 
in doing that. Right, exactly. So against this backdrop, Nancy, I mean, and maybe we talk a little bit about this. Some of the names you're selling on strength are from what are seen to perceived as relatively better parts of the market, some energy, some materials, that kind of thing. Adding Chipotle, adding to Tesla, Tesla reports tonight. I mean, just give us some color around exactly how you want to be positioned here. I think, well, you know that we've been adding risk back in since October um, and, and all of the fall, actually. Which and was the right call. It, it was difficult, but it was the right call, at least for now. And then uh, we actually have been trimming a number of those names, Microsoft, Salesforce. Uh, but I think when you are going into an economic slowdown or a recession, pick one, uh, you want to own companies that have the ability to deliver reliable earnings growth. And I like the secular tailwind between old, company, old economy companies like uh, Chipotle that are embracing the digital revolution, a million dollars in sales per store digital. That's just the digital wow. sales. Um, and then the companies that are pro providing the arms, right? The, the digital um, armaments. NVIDIA is not on this list. I'm just going to ask the obvious question. I mean, is it just a valuation? Yes. Yeah. yeah we, we, there was McDonald's. about 20 minutes when we could buy it. <laughs> and, and I missed it. On January it. 3rd. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. But we, we were able to pick off some Tesla, and that's why we'd like to add to it. Um, Long-term story. And a quick note on that one. Into the they've just cut prices again. We'll have more mm -hmm. on this later this hour. But again, this is I think this is like a fun, provocative one that you were buying well before the rally really took off this year. Why not be trimming that position now? We just didn't buy enough. If I'd have bought enough, you know, this is the conundrum of every portfolio manager. You buy it and it goes up. You didn't buy enough. So it was just it's a small position in our portfolios, and we want to have more exposure long-term. And we have a clean energy strategy that um, is focused on the metals and miners and companies that are delivering clean energy. Barry, so. final question to you again around kind of where you'd want to be right now. I, I can't imagine it'd be cyclicals. I mean, what about energy? Some people there see, you know, maybe that could be a, a pinch point. What do you think? No, I, I actually do like cyclicals. Um, the, the difficult thing is, yeah, we're going into a slowdown here, but the defensive sectors are ridiculously rich, mm -hmm. right? Utilities and staples relative to their own history have almost never been this expensive. And of course, we know mega cap tech is expensive. And so I do think there's a secular trend that's going to um, cause industrials to, I'm calling them the new tech. And uh, <laughs> I, so I do like industrial still. I like energy. The market's undersupplied. So it's tough because it's not a great entry point for the market overall. But the stuff that really reflects a slowdown already are the cyclicals. And so, so staying away from financials, but right now, but um, industrials, metals, energy, they look they look attractive. And Nancy, and so, it, you know, it almost makes you think this whole, all of this is mislabeled because tech are the new industrials, so you don't want to be there. And then industrials are the new tech because you think we have secular, secular growth. And, and you want to be there even into a recession, you know. <laughs> and, right. and every, but it, it's logical, but it's again, it's not the usual, maybe it is the usual playbook, Nancy, but no. I, I don't think it is. This has been the most complex investing environment in my career. And yeah. so you have to pay attention. There, there are things like Barry's absolutely right. Industrials are embracing technology. A lot of digitization. And so we, we're overweight that sector as well. So um, fascinating. But you, you just have to, it, it is about stocks. It is about management teams. And you want them, the, the great ones that can navigate uh, an economic slowdown. And, you know, we saw it last year with ServiceNow, for example. True. 20% plus growth. Um, stock sold off after every earnings report. Um, but it's, you know, it was a great time to pick it off. Yeah, no, he's so. done an incredible job yeah. over there. We'll leave it there. That I really appreciate it, both of you today. Nancy Tangler and Barry Knapp on these markets. As the Dow tries to pair its losses, it's down 62 right now. We also had a 20-year bond up for auction top of the hour with rates on the rise. Rick Santelli, how to go over? You know, it went 
basically average. Let's go through the metrics, Kelly. I gave it a C minus, so slightly below average. We're talking about 12 billion 20-year bonds, a reopening to a, an issue that we created a couple of months ago, the yield 3.92. It tailed a little bit, meaning uh, that the yield was a, a little bit higher than the when issued market, higher yield, lower price, so a little bit taken off for that. But all the metrics were roughly average. And as you look at an intraday of 20-year bonds, you can see we went down, we went up, kind of a middling formation. But when you open the chart up towards December, you can see how many touches we've had in the mid-360s. Very similar to a 30-year bond, a lot of touches in the mid-350s. The long end has been saying that rates are going to go up. And it isn't going to be permanent. It's going to be a bit of a temporary run. Maybe we go up another 25 basis points in a 20 and a 30 year. So the markets are prepared. Equities are looking a little iffy, as you've been pointing out. And with this auction behind us, maybe the most important metric would be tomorrow's initial continuing claims. Kelly, back to you. I totally agree. I'm important for that, important for everything, Rick. Thank you very much, Rick Santelli. Coming up, Netflix pushing back its password sharing crackdown. What does it tell us about demand with the stock down 4% to be one of the Nasdaq's biggest laggards today? Meanwhile, NVIDIA has almost doubled since Jan 1, but one analyst still sees more than 20% upside from here thanks to AI. He'll join us to make his case. As we head to break, here's a broad look at the markets. The Dow is negative, but the S&P is now positive. Well, <laughs> we'll call it unch. The Nasdaq up about 10 points. The Russell's fighting back and forth between positive and negative territory as well. 361 on the 10-year after that auction. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Netflix down a little less than 4% now after initially trading off double digits. After posting some mixed results, they added 1.75 million subscribers last quarter, about as expected. But they also pushed back their password-sharing crackdown, saying the program will now kick off in Q2. And they finally said goodbye to what gave them their start, the DVD-by-mail business. Let's talk what's next for the streamer with City Analyst Jason Bazinet and Mark Douglas, the CEO of Mountain. Welcome to both of you. Good to see you. Mark, some top-level thoughts here. Defend your, I know you love Netflix, and I don't know, they're a little underwhelming this quarter. Well, I, may, I won the stock draft with Ryan based on Netflix pick. The stock, and I, by the way, I personally bought the stock after the <laughs> stock draft. So I did, I, literally money showed up in my bank account. But um, I continue to like Netflix. I think the big news out of their earnings announcement is really about the fact that the um, the new ad-supported tier is monetizing actually better than the lowest plan. I think what's a little lost is Netflix is, let's call it, a $30 billion a year business. The ad business is estimated to be right out the gate, 10% of that, like 2 to $3 billion in revenue in the first year. Um, so that's where that's the growth part of the business. I think it's very different than what they're doing with with cracking down on password sharing. And, and I'm pretty bullish on it because of the ad business. Yeah. And fair enough, Jason, I just look at the password sharing and go, well, yeah, you know, this is something that potentially cuts off a lot of viewership because people are going to have to transition or decide if they want to pay. So if they're delaying that, it doesn't exactly project confidence. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, the password sharing thing to me, I just call it the noise. Hmm. I mean, you have you have the street that's addicted to sort of viewing Netflix through a net ad lens. And this password sharing just injects a tremendous amount of noise 
into the net ads because it causes churn and an unknown number are going to re-sign up. I just ignore that. This is sort of a transition year for Netflix. The signal is really the ad tier. I mean, I, I totally agree. Our, on our math, they're going to add about 65 million net ads uh, on this ad tier over the next three years at a higher ARPU. And that signal is going to begin to shine through towards the back half of this year and into into 24 and into 25. Yeah, higher average revenue per user on the cheaper but ad-supported platform. Again, that's why people are, are excited about this, Mark. Um, I guess what would you be watching from here on out? Well, again, I, I, we're, we're, Jason and I are pretty much in agreement. I mean, password sharing is literally just an, a form of price increase. So that, that and the, everyone, what people want to buy in Netflix is they want to buy growth. And growth comes from innovation, and the innovation is coming from the introduction ad business. The challenge they're going to face is that eventually they're now going to be competing with Disney and NBC and Discovery and all these companies for those ad dollars. It's also going to cha- change the makeup of their business. The revenue, a lot of the revenue is going to start to come from some of the world's largest companies. And so that's different than they have. They get the, all of their revenue from you know, 250 million different users. So I think the, you know, the innovation is going to drive the business. It's always driven Netflix business. But there are a lot of changes coming, and, and they're innovators. They, I, I think they will navigate those changes very well. Jason, is it fair to ask if they're going to be able to seamlessly roll out ad-supported viewing when they couldn't seamlessly roll out their live event Sunday night? Yeah, I mean, I think the ad-supported part is even more complex than live. Uh, there's a yeah. lot more moving parts, um, so it, it will have its challenges. I think the encouraging part is even in this sort of teething period of the ad tier, they're already putting up really good ARPUs. And so I, I don't think, I think they talked about a $7.50 of advertising revenue per ad tier sub. I think that's the floor, not the ceiling in the U.S. So as they, as they add more capabilities, it won't be without pain. But I think you'll also get a parallel lift in that ad revenue per ad user. All right. And that's how you get a $400 price target of buy rating. And we can tell everyone wants more detail on ads and forget everything else. Gentlemen, thanks so much today. We appreciate it. See you soon, Mark. Uh, we hope for stock draft. Mark Douglas and Jason Bazinet. Coming up, Tesla earnings are on deck after the bell, but the bottom line is not the only thing Wall Street's watching. We've got details in earnings exchange. We're back after this with the Dow down 78. Welcome back to The Exchange. Dow trying to erase a 162-point loss. It's been helped by Morgan Stanley's turnaround, not directly, but indirectly. It's down 69 right now. The S&P down a point at 41.53, while the Nasdaq hanging on to a 15-point gain with uh, NVIDIA. She said positive again today. Intuitive Surgical is leading the S&P right now after beating on the top and bottom lines. The shares are up 11%. They're seeing growth in installations and the use of their robotic surgery system. They did note some ongoing softness in China due to COVID. The stock having its best day since March of 2020, and it's now positive on a one-year basis. Uh, There you can see a gain of 1.5%. Elsewhere, CNBC.com's pro team is highlighting the most heavily shorted stocks on the street. I was going to cover them up and ask if you could guess, but here's the reveal. Carvana up there with 56% of the float held short. Novavax, 45%. Then Upstart, EVgo, Wayfair, all more than 30%. And just below them, C3AI with 29% short interest amid all of this AI hype. It's Shares are now up about 14% over the past 52 weeks. For the full list, head over to cnbc.com slash pro. And speaking of AI, 
We're barely at the AOL stage of it, according to one of our next guests. So what will it take to jumpstart the space and how should it be regulated or not? We'll debate next. Welcome back to The Exchange. The push into AI has the chip makers rallying this year after a tough 2022. NVIDIA up nearly 90 percent, AMD up almost 40 percent, even Intel climbing almost 20 percent. Bank of America estimates NVIDIA currently holds 75 percent of the AI chip market. B of A raising their price target on NVIDIA to 340 from 310 as the shares are trading right near their 52-week highs. Joining me now is Vivek Arya, Senior Semiconductors Analyst at Bank of America Securities. It's good to have you here, Vivek. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Was it, correct me if I'm wrong, was it just yesterday? Is it Microsoft who's trying to make some of their own chips now to try to not have to give quite so much share to NVIDIA? I mean, at some point, are people going to have to adapt because they have almost monopolistic control of a market that they pretty much created? Sure. So first, uh, I would say that we are in very early stages of the adoption of this uh, generative AI or large language uh, models. This is probably the first year of what could be a five or 10 year uh, investment cycle. And uh, the main requirement uh, is uh, very high levels of computation, very advanced levels of uh, networking. So it requires more than just making the first generation of a chip. You really need full stack computing. So you need to be good uh, in the front end of design. You need to be very good on the software side. You need to be very good on the developer side. And you need to do that with a lot of scale. So I do think that NVIDIA checks uh, all of those uh, boxes. But that doesn't mean they will have 100% market share. I think you will see uh, the cloud players. Google has always had their internal product called the TPU. Amazon has had a product called Inferentia. But over the last five years, we have seen NVIDIA's data center business essentially, you know, grow 10 times right. uh, despite all those, uh, co- uh, despite all that uh, competition. And I think generative AI uh, takes us to the next level of uh, complexity of this chip making. So we do think NVIDIA can hold it or even expand their market share. So is it true that some of their newer chips, I mean, these could be twenty or $30,000 a pop? Yeah, you have to look at the range of investments that is going into uh, this market, uh, that you have the top three or four hyperscalers uh, that along with the ones uh, overseas spend over $150 billion in uh, cloud spending. That's a lot for their internal workloads. That's for a number of uh, public uh, workloads. But what is common to all of these hyperscalers is this adoption of AI. Because AI is what helps them mass customize uh, their offering for a whole range of recommendation systems, e-commerce, social. And now this new form of generative AI, I think we are in very early stages uh, of that. Um, so yes, it is true that NVIDIA's newer products are two to three times as expensive as what they're replacing. But you also have to keep in mind that uh, the amount of performance uh, optimization they offer is probably eight to ten times the products they are uh, replacing. Wow. And I think that, that is the key. Um, so that on a per uh, unit basis, they are actually offering a lot more uh, performance and lower power consumption than they used to in the past. That's the value proposition. No, it's incredibly valuable and to the U.S. Uh, in particular. So if the government ever moved to restrict sales externally, do you know what the breakdown is for NVIDIA revenue or earnings wise in terms of U.S. versus uh, foreign sales or China in particular? Sure. So there are restrictions already in terms of the most advanced AI products that they can uh, ship to China. Um, They have uh, modified those products to conform with uh, U.S. restrictions. So China is only about 15, 20 percent of their sales. That's usually the mid to low end of uh, their uh, products called the A800 or the H800. 
the most advanced products are uh, still really uh, dominated by use in uh, among the uh, U.S. hyperscaler and the U.S. enterprises. So I think those restrictions are there. The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, when you look at the China hyperscale uh, market, which is really the big adopter of NVIDIA uh, products, it's actually a very small part of global spending. And most of the use cases in China tend to be very consumer dominated. They're not the kind of enterprise use cases that I think will dominate a lot of this generative AI adoption in uh, the US. So we do expect the US market to be very strong, you know, 70, 80% of demand, but they have been able to modify uh, their products to conform with US restrictions to, to ship to China as well. I guess my final question is, if all of this now seems so obvious, why didn't we see it a year ago, you know? No, it's a good point. I think what really changed is late last year when uh, OpenAI put this uh, interface out to the public, True. right? Uh, this uh, chat GPT interface. And I think that really has stimulated a lot of uh, attention. It's uh, created um, really uh, this uh, cycle of uh, uh, adoption that is just uh, kicking off. It's not just the top three or four hyperscalers. You know, remember each of them used to be a startup at one point and they displaced the incumbent. And now what we have in the Valley is three or 400 startup companies that are trying to develop new and innovative applications with this new technology. So when they do that, they, they need compute uh, power that is available on the cloud. And that is where the need for GPUs, we think, can grow even faster than, than what we had anticipated last year. I think you're exactly right. You know, it really it was the breakthrough event of the year. And so it does really explain why NVIDIA is just all the talk right now and deservedly so. Uh, Vivek, thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Vivek Arya with you. Bank of America. Let's stick with AI because my next guest is making it a core part of his business already, enabling customers to build apps without coders, maybe entirely free of human. It sounds great to me, honestly. Let's bring in Sachin Dev Degal. He's founder and CEO of Builder.ai, and he's here with our own Steve Kovac. Welcome to both of you. Um, let me back up for a second, Sachin. Before AI became part of this, we had a lot of no-code, low-code technology. Just explain that for a second. Sure. You know, when you, when you think about what's happening in the industry and the world at large, is you're having more and more businesses now build software just to be relevant. Right. Um, the old way is not going to work anymore. And so you had this movement of no-code, low-code, where it said, hey, I'm giving you a canvas with some tools. Go build whatever you want. The problem is most people can't use Excel. They think Java is a coffee bean you buy at Starbucks. And so getting them to now try and build applications which their business depends on, right. because it's no longer nice to have, is, is really difficult. Steve, what would you add to that? Yeah, I mean, the thing that interests me about your company and other companies who are working on similar things is, when do you think we're going to get to the point where just a goober like me who has no coding experience can just tell an AI, I want to make an app that does X? How far away are we from that? Yeah. I, know, I know you start that way with your company, you maybe prompt it, yeah. but then it gives you templates. When are we gonna get the full stack that way? So I'll give you a really interesting example. I have two little children and they do art class on a weekend. And you tell them, go draw Picasso. It's usually not so great. Then you give them five paintings of Picasso and you say, go draw Picasso, it's a lot better. Then you say, you can cut and paste any of these five paintings. Now you have something you'll put on a wall. And I think you're seeing the same thing in how software is built. We're going from a world where it's a white piece of paper, go write a spec, and no one knows what to write, and they know they're going to miss things, to a world where it's picking things that you know you understand, features that you need, 
and then creating something new as a combination of things that already exist. It, so I think that will keep going. Is Builder.ai a customer-facing or a business, consumer or a business-facing product? Give me just an example of who's using it. So we have everyone from a little bakery or a school nursery up to um, CM Micro, or you know, recently we signed up one of the largest pizza distribution companies in the world. And what are they looking who. to do with your, with your technology? 80% of our customers build software applications that help them engage with their own customers, hmm. whether it's commerce, retail, delivery, restaurants. 20% um, of our customers use Builder to build software where they're digitally transforming internal processes. Hmm. Really what we've built is a way to use like Lego-like reusable features to build anything. And we know this in Lego, right? You can have the same Lego build a car and it can build a castle. And so similarly, you can have login for a, a pizza distribution app or you can have login logging into an enterprise system. Yeah, and so it's funny, Steve, because I think some of us, we grew up in this era where we got technology right because it was, we were the first generation to use yeah. it. And I don't, speaking just for myself, I'm at a point now where I'm like, well, this is way past my level of expertise. <laughs> so I have to hand it over. I, I can't really see what I'm doing. I don't have that transparency. I didn't build it myself. I can't build it myself. And that makes me nervous sometimes. I don't know if you can kind of talk to that, just that sense of, I, when I'm doing plug and play, well, what happens if things start breaking or don't work the way that I want them to or I want to customize? And I think this goes to your earlier question, right, which is I don't think it's a world where you simply talk to an AI and say, build me something. Uh, I think there's always going to be a human in the loop. And we've sort of been using this term human-assisted AI for a very long time. Um, it's a matter of how much is human and how much is AI. And so we've got to a happy medium today where it's about 1.2 human beings to build a piece of software. It used to be 10. Hmm. Um, in some cases, Will it be it's zero, zero eventually. Well, I think in some cases it is zero. Like retailers, restaurants, we can ship stuff in a day and a half, two days, and it's zero. But at some point, you will need a human expert. And, and so what you're seeing with AI is a shift that's allowing the more creative part of human nature to kick in rather than the mon mundane, benign stuff that they may end up doing. I have one more question, Sachin, and it's how quickly did you use a, and I'll just say chat GPT-like interface, where did you, what kind of language model is it? How quickly did you embed that into your existing system? Because as we were just talking about with Vivek, I mean, this really only came, for a lot of us, came to, to sort of notice about six months ago. You know, we, we often now, especially in the last few months, and so I live in England, and I hear people talking about LLMs in the tube. And so it, it, to me, it's like LLMs are a not that new, but more importantly, they're not the be-all and end-all of AI. And, um, you know, when you think about a large language model, it's a probability-based system. But you think about knowledge graphs, they're rules-based systems. But they're both AI, and they're both usable. So for us, the approach started with how do we build a software brain that understands when you talk about login or when you talk about payments, what are the other things you could be talking about? Mm -hmm. And so we started with a knowledge graph route. Once we built enough of that knowledge graph that we could really understand what a customer was talking about, we How then long built- How did you start all this? The knowledge graph started about three, four years ago. Wow. Um, early, but it needs data. Mm -hmm. Then it's about getting enough data to go through it. Now it's really smart. And I'll give you an example. We did a test um, where we ran six months worth of customer conversation through Natasha, it's the name of REI. And she found 98% of the features that the human found. Hmm. But she found 107% of the features that were actually discussed. Hmm. So she's more accurate than the human being in figuring out, oh, actually, this person needs saved credit cards. They might actually want a wallet system. And, and, and so, is it a pay-per-month type of product? Or just, you know, how, how, how does, what's the business model? The business model for Builder is you pay per feature. Each feature has a subscription. You don't have to sign up to it after a year. Uh, and then there's an expert network that helps you put the last mile together. So customization, colors, logo, some business logic. Interesting. And I think that's where I think it's so important because, like I said, our average customer today 
they can't use Excel. And so getting them to build a software application is pretty difficult. Yeah, they're trying to run a pizza business. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Cupcake right, exactly. decorating right. business. No one wants to mess with Excel. Steve, yeah. quick last word. Yeah, I was just curious. So I, I know you say we're kind of in this AOL moment. Other people say we're in the iPhone moment. Is it somewhere in between? I guess my, my real question here is, we hear Jensen Wong from NVIDIA talk about this iPhone moment, that doing exactly what you're saying, it sounds like we're not there yet, though. So I guess, is he wrong about that? No, I is don't he overhyping it? I don't know if it's right or wrong. I think it's context, right? And so if you're saying, can you please help me generate a picture of Morocco? Fabulous. Yeah, we're, we're in a world where you can talk to Dali and say, give me a picture of Morocco and it'll be pretty decent. Right. Are we in a world where you're going to delineate cancer detection or breast cancer detection to any? Absolutely not. But it can assist right but now. But it can assist, right? And, and so the, to me, the important here is nuance. Today, AI is like a child. Children learn on two things, rules and values. So we can, we've created some rules because we realized what happened in ChatGPT3. We haven't yet created values. Um, and then the problem you have is when a child is born, parents build the value system and there's a small amount of information they can access. This child is born with the world as its information store. So you need good people training this. Good not people evil training. People. Right, exactly. And you need a value system. For a <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> for LLMs. Such an LLM talk on the tube is what I'll remember from this as well. It's great to have you here. Not Thanks the subway, for coming though. In. I have not no. heard it in the subway <laughs> in New York. Because no one's on. No, I'm yeah. not going to say it. Uh, Sachin Dev thanks for your time Thank today you so with much. Builder.ai. Steve Kovac, thank Thanks. you very much as well. Still ahead here on the exchange, spring housing season kicked off with lower rates and cooling prices, but now it's a different story. We've got the latest read on all of that activity right after this. Welcome back, everybody. You could call it a spring setback for the housing market, although it's been pretty busy around here. But mortgage rates are climbing again. Let's get to Diana Olick with the latest numbers. Diana? Well, Kelly, mortgage rates are now moving decidedly higher. The average on the 30-year fix rose to 6.75% today. It's now up 36 basis points from just one week ago. The start of that rise last week caused mortgage applications to purchase a home to drop 10% from the week before. That, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, buyer demand was 36% lower than the same week a year ago when the 30-year fixed was averaging 5.2%. FHA demand dropped the most, and the average loan size increased to its highest level in a month, and both of those indicate that first-time buyers are pulling back. But wealthier buyers may also be seeing some new difficulty when it comes to credit. Banks had been offering lower rates on jumbo loans, but that spread between jumbo and conforming loans is much tighter now compared with last year. And this, of course, has to do with those recent regional bank failures that have rippled through the industry. On the refi side, those applications dropped 6% for the week and were 56% lower than a year ago. Just not a lot of folks out there who could benefit at today's higher rates. Kelly. Absolutely. Thanks for the context, Diana. We appreciate it. Diana Olick, we'll see you again in a moment. Up next, near-term options in Tesla. Say a 15% move in either direction on results tonight. There are only four bullish ratings on REIT SL Green. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on those names next in Earnings Exchange.
Welcome back, everybody. Let's get to today's earnings exchange. We've got one name from today and a couple on deck as we trade the one big mover today and preview uh, who else we're going to hear from. Travelers is who I'm talking about. The shares are up about 7% after their strong results today, despite elevated cat losses, catastrophe losses. That in part was helped by a one-time tax benefit. Travelers also upped its buyback program by $5 billion. It hiked its dividend by 7.5% to a dollar a share. We've already got the results, so let's trade it now with Steve Grasso of Grasso Global. I see CNBC contributor. Steve, it's great to see you again. Um, earnings exchange. All right, let's start with travelers today. Big pop, still down 1% year to date. What do you do with it? So, so this one, I'll start where, where you started, Kelly. So they boosted their dividend. The record date for that dividend to own the stock is June 9th. So people still want to own things that, that have a return on it. So you could see some follow through on this buying. If you look at the buyback, Added $5 billion to the, to the buyback. There's $1.6 billion left. So that has a little bit of a stabilizer to it. You don't buy a stock because of the buyback because the buyback is not able to run the stock up uh, due to the regulations that are required within a buyback. I would wait on this one, though, Kelly, because whenever you see a pop like this, they always come back and there's always a, a little bit of reversion. I'll give you a little bit of a guideline where you would wait to. I would wait to the 100-day holds, which is the 182.20 level. Let's see if that can hold for about three days. Yeah, you say this landscape has been you know, much more cautious than uh, today's action would have you seem. All right, so you're waiting uh, this one out, Steve. Let's move on and talk about Tesla. The shares are up nearly 50% this year, but they are down about a percent today after another round of price cuts. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with that story and a preview. Hi, Phil. Hey, Kelly, it's all about the automotive gross margins. That is going to be the one metric that people will be keying in on tonight. The consensus is that it will come in at 20.5%. So if it's up a little bit from there, you might see some support for the stock. If it's down, people will say, where does this trend end? Look, uh, Q1 of 22, it was at 30% even. And now it's expected to be at 20.5. Clearly, the price cuts have a big impact in terms of those automotive gross margins. So when the numbers come in after the bell, that will be what people will be focused on. It's not the only thing, but it'll be the primary thing, Kelly. That's incredible. A 10-point drop. I'm glad you put that together, Phil, in their gross profit margin. Steve, is that enough to make you want to sell the stock? No, I, I think it's all, you know, the stock market is all a relative performance. So why don't you slap up there, you know, GM's uh, profit margin on EV, EVs or Ford. Ford is due to lose $6 billion in three years on EVs. And once they stabilize, they're trying to get to a gross margin of 8%. So most of these newcomers to the EV world don't make any profit Tesla is pretty much the only one who makes anything. And obviously, Kelly, the adoption rate for EVs still in the single digits. So if we could start climbing from there, Tesla's probably pretty shrewd in this. They're weeding out their competition because the competition cannot raise prices while Tesla is cutting them. Tesla has the scale. Tesla has the know-how. And if you look at it, the stock is up 48% year to date. But on a one-year performance, it's down 46%. Still room to trade higher. One, uh, higher. one last thing. You said that the implied option move is 15%. That probably, if we're lucky and we get a pop, that gets you to almost the 200-day moving average, 
which is right around $213. I can hear people cheering you on as you're saying, go get them, Steve. All right, we'll see if they can meet those expectations uh, tonight <laughs> and going forward. And we'll turn to, uh, finally, SL Green. In a new note, Morgan Stanley expects office rate earnings to contract 10% this year. But analyst Ronald Camden notes some bright spots, including at SLG, saying they're on track to hit their leasing target. Diana Olick has a preview. This name's up 4% today, Diana. Yeah, Kelly, look, we all know Office is under pressure, but SL Green does have an advantage compared with its peers due to outsized exposure to higher performing assets in Manhattan. Now, that said, we'll be watching occupancy levels, of course, and new leasing, which has as been recently on track. Now, refinancing on its loans is also a big one, given higher interest rates and credit constraints, and there will likely be commentary on its 919 Third Avenue property going through refi now. And, of course, we'll be looking for anything on return to work and how that's all going, Kelly. And, Steve, I'm trying to think of which way you're going to break on this. With the herd who tells us about the impending commercial real estate doom or, or otherwise, what do you do? Well, this one, you know, when you look at the chart, it's below all its moving averages. Mm. It hasn't been above uh, its moving averages since April of 2022. So when you, when you look at everything that Diana just said, the impending doom that you just alluded to, $1.6 of commercial loans coming due uh, by the end of, the, uh, of 2025 or so. So if you look at just the performance basis on this one, on a year performance, it's down 67%. Year to date, it's down 25%. But month to date, it's up around 6% or so, um, give or take. So people are rushing into this to try to gain a little bit of beta here. All the bad news seems to be out there, Kelly. So you might have a little bit of a window here to rally this one back. Uh, before that impending doom of the commercial real estate uh, coming due actually really comes due. Real quickly, Diana, are they a barometer for the rest of the industry or is this, are they expected to benefit from some of their New York exposure? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I don't think you can go for the whole rest of the industry because, as we all know, all real estate is local and that goes for office as well. So it depends really on what markets you're in. And SL Green is very concentrated in New York City and Manhattan in particular. Right, for better or worse, depending on you know how that What, Steve? One, one last thing. I, you're, you would have been a great teacher. You saw me raise my hand. <laughs> we got the short seconds. interest in this stuff. The short interest is above 20 percent and the dividend yield is 14 percent. Wow. The hint of anything good in this, the stock rallies. You're right. It is dividends are drawing people in in a major way. Thank you both very much today. Steve, we really appreciate it. Steve Grasso and, of course, Diana Olick wearing multiple hats. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. We'll see you next on Power Lunch. Tyler's back and he's getting ready. We'll have more earnings movers coming up. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.